So over the past few years, I've been working our way through the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, it's the 2nd of June, AD 57. We know that from the fact that it's just a few days after Pentecost and uh, in AD 57. And Paul, as he says in Acts 24, verse 17, says he's in Jerusalem to bring a large gift of money from the Gentile churches of Asia, that is modern-day Turkey, and Greece, to bring the money from them to the Christian church in Jerusalem. Now, while Paul is in the temple at Jerusalem, he's spotted by some Jews from Turkey who know and hate him because of his ministry of preaching about Jesus of Nazareth. And they see Paul and they seize him and they stir up the whole crowd and are in the very act of killing him. That's what he actually says in Acts 22. They're in the very act of killing Paul when the Roman commander intervenes in the nick of time and saves Paul's life. By speaking Greek to the Romans, Paul persuades them to let him speak to the Jewish crowd. And then Paul addresses the crowd in Aramaic, the local language, and they listen to him. And they listen to his story about his encounters with the risen Jesus Christ. And Paul presents them with ten truths about Jesus Christ. And we looked at that last time in August. But when Paul gets to the part in his story where Jesus this, sends him to preach to the Gentiles, the crowd go wild and start rioting again and shouting that Paul is not fit to live. The Romans have to rescue Paul again the second time. Uh, as I said uh, in August when we looked at this, the seven verses, Acts 22 verses 27 to 33, are like a scene in an action film with its threat to life and its split-second timings. Now, let's have a, a quick look at the, uh, uh, the layout of the temple at the time of Paul. And the temple has got this outer wall here, and inside here is the court of the Gentiles. You can see up here. This is the inner temple, and uh, they'd, they'd grab Paul when he was in the inner temple and pulled him out through these gates here, and the priests quickly locked them so they didn't defile the inner temple area. And if we, you can see the fortress of Antonio, uh, Antonia up there in the uh, north corner. Now, if we go to the next one, perhaps you can see this uh, a little bit better. There's some detail about how the, um, the, the fortress connects to the, uh, to the temple. And you see these various staircases and things and bridges. And Romans up here spotted Paul being murdered down here, acted very quickly, and a large force went down and saved Paul's life. And uh, Paul, as I said, he, he, tries to pers he persuades the Romans to let him speak to the crowd, and he does that. And before you know it, they're up in arms again against him and they have to save his life a second time. Now the Romans, you know, they've saved Paul's life from the mob twice in the space of an hour. 
And the Roman commander, we know his name is Claudius Lysias, because it's mentioned later on in the passage, you know, he probably can't speak Aramaic. And so he did not understand what Paul was saying to the crowd that caused such a reaction in the crowd of Jewish worshippers. And wanting answers, he orders that Paul be tortured for info. Just save this guy's life twice while he's been nearly killed. Right, we'll torture him. It's a brutal time to live, isn't it? It's a very brutal time to live. And Paul, about to be tortured, claims his right as a Roman citizen. Verse 25, it says, as they stretched him out to flog him. You know, they're not going to torture him next week. They're doing it then. And they're going to tie him out, and they're in the process of tying him out, when Paul says to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, the Roman centurion, he obeys the law. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the Roman commander and he reported it. What are you going to do? He says to the commander. This man is a, a Roman citizen. The Roman commander obeys the law. Verse 27, the commander goes to Paul and says to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul answers. Now, the Roman commander valued Roman citizenship so highly himself that he had paid a large sum of money to the authorities for him to be made a Roman citizen because there was rights that came with such citizenship. Whereas in the providence of God, Paul had been born a Roman citizen, even though he was born in Turkey. Uh, the, the, we can have British citizenship, can't we? Even if we're born abroad. Now, verse 29, it says that the commander was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Even doing that was not allowed by the law. And we see also that the common Roman soldiers respect and obey the law. Verse 29, those who were about to interrogate Paul withdrew immediately. It was established he was a Roman citizen. They wanted nothing to do with torturing a Roman citizen. And isn't it good when the law is strong enough that even those at the coalface, those under pressure, obey it? Verse 30, the commander, he still doesn't know what on earth the, the Jews, the Jewish crowds have against Paul. So in verse 30, it says, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews so the next day he released him, kept him in protective custody overnight, and he ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and set him before them. That's the end of chapter 22. Now the Sanhedrin is the, uh, the Jewish court. It's the highest court in the land. And it normally met in the Hall of Stones. Now, the Hall of Stones, 
is there. Maybe you can't read that red writing. But it says, the chamber of hewn stones, brackets, Sanhedrin. So they normally met there. But this is inside the inner temple. And Gentiles are not allowed in there. So this trial of Paul before the Sanhedrin is probably taking place round here somewhere where the Romans could go. And um, Acts 23, verse 1, Paul is placed before the 71 judges of the Sanhedrin, and he makes his opening remarks. Now, if you look through uh, this passage, you see that Paul repeatedly addresses the members of the Sanhedrin as equals. My brothers, brethren, he says, in verse 1, verse 5, and verse 6. He would have known some of them from his time of persecuting the church 32 years beforehand. And uh, while he's making his opening remarks, Ananias, the high priest, takes exception to Paul's statement that he has fulfilled his duty in all good conscience before God. And he orders those nearest to Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, Paul's aghast at this breach of the law by the Supreme Court in front of all the members of the Supreme Court. And he scolds Ananias, pointing out the hypocrisy. Verse 3, he says, You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Paul's absolutely right. The high priest's a hypocrite. Verse 4, those who had struck Paul remind him that it's wrong to insult the high priest. Now, obviously, Ananias was not in his robes of office at the time, and Paul did not recognise that he was the high priest. And so, verse 5, Paul apologises for the insult, and he quotes Exodus 22, 28. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your law. We've seen that the Romans respect the law. Paul respects the law. Paul respects the law of God. Do we? Certainly Ananias did not. It seems clear that Ananias, as the high priest, has an outward profession as head of an organised religion, but he's really just a politician who has had no heart change. Now, our rulers may be deeply flawed like this high priest, yet the law requires us to respect their authority. Yeah? So how do we consider, how do we think and talk about our rulers We've seen an awful lot of bad behaviour over the last several years, haven't we? Now, it may be very easy to have respect for the Queen, but the Prime Minister and the leaders of the other political parties, they're broken people, aren't they? With lives and often language 
that is shameful. If Paul can show respect to this high priest, we can show respect to our politicians. Not because of their actions, which sometimes are disgraceful, but because of their office and our submission to the law of God. As Christians, we are keepers of the law. Keepers of the law of God and therefore keepers of the law of the land. So, we've not to only have respect for those who have authority over us, but we have to pray for them. Do we do it? Do we do it? We're commanded by Paul to pray for those in authority over us. Now, uh, they say, don't they, that the rot starts at the top. And so it's very bad when the judge is biased against you. And the actions of the high priest shows Paul that the court is corrupted. And he sees that he cannot get a fair trial here. So Paul exposes the bias and partiality that exists in the court for all to see. He knows that the Sanhedrin is made up mainly of two opposed groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So Paul, in verse 6, raises the core issue that has brought him before this Jewish Supreme Court, and that's the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. It's the astonishing truth that has changed Paul's life and that he has faithfully proclaimed for the previous 32 years. And immediately, when he mentions the resurrection from the dead, verse 7, the Sanhedrin splits along partisan lines. Tribal loyalties rear their ugly head. And we've got these two groups, the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were mainly the upper-class Jews, the aristocracy. The priests were mainly Sadducees. They maintained the temple and, and therefore enjoyed many privileges. The, the high priest was probably a Sadducee. Now, the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's all they accept as the word of God. Five out of 39 Old Testament books. And verse 8, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels or demons. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. And they did not believe in the afterlife or that men and women would experience resurrection after their physical death. Nor indeed did the Sadducees believe that God had promised to send a Messiah to redeem Israel. Are you with them? Are you like them? 
in their doctrine. Yeah? The Sadducees are in denial. There can be no resurrection as far as they're concerned, so they won't even look at the evidence. They won't even consider the possibility, even though they live in the very city in which Jesus was raised from the dead. Are you like the Sadducees? Do you discard or deny part of the Bible and so impoverish yourself spiritually? Have you perhaps put the Old Testament back up on the shelf, or indeed the whole Bible? Do you skip verses you do not like in the Bible? Perhaps verses about judgment and everlasting punishment for sinners in hell? Do you, on principle, rule out that there is a Messiah, a Saviour sent from God? Does your inbuilt prejudice rule out the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you a modern-day Sadducee? Or maybe you're like the Pharisees in verse 8. Now, the, the Pharisees were mainly middle-class Jews. Unlike the Sadducees, they accepted all the Old Testament as being the word of God. And so the Pharisees believed in God, angels and demons, the last judgment, the promised Messiah, and the immortality of the soul. And they prided themselves on a strict adherence to the law. In fact, they loved law-keeping, and they elevated it almost to an art form. They followed legal traditions that were not just from the Bible, but also following the traditions of their fathers, man-made rules. The Pharisees were thus a Bible-plus group. They had the Bible, but they had the extras on top, their own set of extras. They were a Bible-plus group, and were busy working their own way to heaven by being exceedingly good people, they thought. And as Paul says in Acts 23, verse 6, he was not only descended from Pharisees, but he had been a very active Pharisee himself. Fools. Eh? Sinners like us can never enter heaven by our own efforts. And Paul had learned this fact the hard way. And he now saw a righteousness given to him by the grace of God. Verse 9. Are you like these Pharisees when confronted with the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ? What did they do? They believe in resurrection in principle. They believe there was a coming Messiah. But what do they do? They move off on a tangent. They're confronted with the resurrection and they move straight off on a tangent and start talking about angels and demons. Amazing. It's a wonderful fact, isn't it? The physical bodily resurrection of the Son of God. But it wasn't enough for them. They're off 
at a tangent. It's a bit like uh, you watch the film and there's the star. But all you're interested in is not the star in the main story. You're interested in these bit part character actors who've got a walk-on cameo and off again. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. Yes, it mentions angels and demons, but it is about Jesus Christ. Is that where your focus <coughs> is? Or are you like the Pharisees? Do you glory in doctrines and stories about angels and demons? Are you a Bible plus Christian? Sticking to Jesus Christ as the saviour of sinners, <coughs> is it just not enough for you? Even today, the resurrection is a divisive issue and it separates all mankind into two groups. Those that believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and those that just reject it. Now, the resurrection is proof that Jesus is God, you know. The Sadducees and Pharisees, these guys were the acknowledged experts on the Old Testament. And so they should have been the experts on the resurrection. Since the Old Testament prophesies the resurrection, just as it prophesies the coming of Christ and him removing the sin of his people by his atoning death. Time and again in the Old Testament, we see Christ's atoning death prophesied. We see it foretold. For instance, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. The Sadducees and the Pharisees knew these verses. They knew them almost certainly by heart. And there it says, Surely he, that's God's servant, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. This is clearly speaking about the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross where our sin was put upon him and we experienced peace with God because he was crushed for our iniquities and we were healed by his wounds. So that's the atoning death of Christ in the Old Testament. And we see the resurrection in the same passage, Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, in other words, he dies as a sin offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. He will live. Even though he dies, he will live. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. A clear verse in the Old Testament prophesying the atoning death of Christ and the subsequent resurrection. And again in Zechariah, Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. I am going to bring my servant the branch, says the Lord Almighty. 
and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. What a stunning prophecy of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And then the resurrection, Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The resurrection clearly foretold in the Old Testament. And there's many more verses. Now, these are the Old Testament experts of their day, and they should have been ripe for the news of the resurrection. But they hardened their hearts and they focused on other things, which by comparison are worthless things. Are you like them? Busy ignoring what God has done for guilty sinners through his son. Now the resurrection, it's the truth that divides the world. And Paul in Acts 23, 6, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And let's be certain Paul is on trial before the Sanhedrin some of whom he probably personally knew from his work 30-odd years before as persecutor of the church. And the resurrection is the great truth behind this change in Paul's life from being a persecutor of the church to being one proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is the central truth not just of the Old Testament, but of the New Testament. And the resurrection puts Jesus uniquely in a category of just one. Jesus predicted his own death, and he predicted his own resurrection. And then he did it. He laid down his life, and he took it back up again. Peter in a sermon preached in the very city of Jerusalem, recorded in Acts 2.36, says that the resurrection declares Jesus to be both the promised Messiah, the Christ, but also declares him to be the Lord God of the Old Testament. The resurrection proves that we must take everything Jesus said and did very Seriously indeed. Jesus said he would die for the sins of his people to redeem them. He gave his life to redeem people. And then he was raised so that we, the willful, guilty sinners that we all are, would be declared righteous before a holy God. This truth, this message of hope, making known the fact that Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead is the reason be behind all that Paul has done and is the reason he is here on trial before the Sanhedrin. Paul declares the resurrection to these Old Testament scholars and leaders of the people. 
I declare it to you here today. Do you believe it? Do you put your trust in the Son of God? The resurrection is the truth that divides the world. Are you raised from the dead with the Lord Jesus Christ and are so forgiven? Or are you still dead in your sins? Now, at Paul's statement about the resurrection, the Sanhedrin, the top religious people in the country, quickly descend into chaos, violent chaos. Verse 10, now, when there rose a great dissension, the Roman commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. The Romans have to save Paul's life from being murdered by the religious Jews for the third time in two days. And this is the Sanhedrin. They are the best educated people. They were the religious leaders who knew the, the word of God. They were the Jewish supreme court. And look at their behavior. Lawbreakers and about to tear Paul to pieces. They needed to up their game. If they don't, it's likely they're just going to be moved off the historical scene, as happened 14 years later. The Sanhedrin needed to up their game. Does their behavior make you think they knew God? Eh? But what does it say? What does this say about me? What does it say about us? We too need to up our game, our behavior. Does it carry the hallmark that we have spent time with the Lord God? Mm. Even the five book Sadducees accepted these verses from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Our behavior, does it carry the hallmark that we have spent time with the Lord God? Christ is in control, you know. Our purposes in life, you know, are the purpose he wants us to have and he will be at our side through everything. Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul had never been to Rome at that time. 
So why does Jesus Christ appear to Paul just now? In verse 11 at the end of this passage. Well, the risen and glorified Lord Jesus, for that is what he is now, is telling Paul that he, Jesus, is in control. He's totally in control of, of everything. Paul won't end up being killed here in Jerusalem, despite all the dangers and difficulties. I will have you testify about me in Rome. Now, it's 1,400 miles as an aeroplane flies. And in those days, it's a lot further by foot and boat, isn't it? But Christ is a faithful friend and Lord. And Jesus intends to strengthen and encourage Paul by this appearance. He is reminding Paul why he's going through all these difficulties. Jesus declared in Acts 9.15, Paul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. He is here in Jerusalem as a witness to Jesus' death and resurrection. And he has not yet completed the task that Jesus has set him. Christ's witness, Paul, will testify in Rome. And Christ will faithfully keep Paul until his mission is ended, until his race is run. And then Jesus will take Paul to be with himself in glory. Now, yes, sometimes we experience difficulty, don't we, because of our own sin and foolishness. But being a Christian is not a pathway to trouble-free living. <coughs> Paul is going through these difficulties precisely because he is faithfully doing the will of God. And Paul has had a particularly rough few days in these chapters of Acts, hasn't he? And Jesus is encouraging Paul, saying, I know what you are going through, Paul. Paul, I know what you will go through in the future. And I am at your side through it all. What encouragement that must have been for Paul. What better encouragement could he possibly have had? What encouragement that is for each and every one of us as we go through our own set of difficulties and issues. As we go out from here, like Paul, there are no guarantees about our prospects or comfort in this life. There's none. Yet, like Paul, what certainty we have is far better. We know that Jesus Christ is in control of everything. We know that Jesus will ensure that we complete his purposes in this world. And we know that he will be with us at our sides on our journey and that finally he shall take us to be with himself in glory. Jesus Christ is in control. Jesus Christ is our purpose in this life. And Jesus Christ is at our side as we journey from birth through to death.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. And we recall that when we are weak, his strength will be made perfect in our weakness. As we go out from here today, spiritually weak, maybe physically weak, Heavenly Father, we, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will go with us. We thank you for the Saviour of mankind. We pray that our trust will be fully upon him. Amen.